Okay, today my guest is Professor Luis Gomez Mejia. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Luis as a person. Professor Gomez Mejia is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Luis Gomez Mejia is a fellow of the AOM and a Regents Professor and Chair in Arizona State University. His research focuses on the relationships of international management, strategic management, executive compensation, and family business. He is among the most published authors at our top management journals. He has published more than 250 articles in Academy of Management Journal, uh, Academy of Management Review, Strategic Management Journal, ASQ, among others. He has many accomplishments and received many awards. Uh, he has received the exemplary awards uh, from the PhD projects for his service. And he was selected to the Academy of Management's Hall of Fame based on his publications in the uh, Academy journals. He has served as the president of Ibero-American AOM three times and was the program chair, division chair uh, at various AOM conferences. Thank you, Luis, for joining us. Well, thanks to you for the invitation. Thanks. Uh, first question always, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, you know, I wasn't sure, frankly. <laughs> I never had a clear idea of what I wanted to become. Um, as a matter of fact, I wasn't sure I was going to become an academic until I was about 30 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working in industry. I was working at Control Data Corporation. Uh, I worked there for about eight years. And I was one of the very few who got my PhD part-time, believe it or not. Uh, now you couldn't do that. It took me about 10 years to get my PhD uh, because I was working basically full-time uh, control data. And then, um, you know, I mean, I, I like writing, you know, so uh, I wrote a few papers when I was working full-time and some of those papers were published in the Academy of Management Journal, which is, a, you know, at the time I didn't even know what that meant, really. <laughs> <laughs> It means something. Let me tell you, it means something. Okay, yes. uh, where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Yeah, but I mean, I grew up in uh, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Okay, so. and between the, uh, where you you were and your part-time PhD uh, yeah. education, uh, why did you pursue academic careers? You know. I like, to, frankly, I, I guess I like the flexibility that it provides, for one thing. Hmm. Uh, that's one of the things that attracted me, you know, to this career. Uh, I enjoy, you know, writing and enjoy, you know, doing my own things. Uh, I went to school, I went to Catholic school, I went to Jesuits, Jesuit school. And I had some excellent mentors in high school in Santo Domingo, I have to say that. Uh, so that's where I picked up a lot of my interest, really, you know, working with some of the brilliant, uh, you know, Jesuit priests that helped me, you know, they told me how to write, they told me how to think, you know, 
you know, philosophy, those kinds of things when I was really a little kid, I mean, basically. So that's how I started doing some of that. And um, I began to do some research actually, even in high school. Uh, I, I remember doing some research on uh, poverty in Dominican Republic, um, you know, doing some research on the, on the family in Dominican Republic. Uh, so I always had, a, I guess I had a curiosity to figure out like why are people poor? Why is there inequality in the world? Um, you know, uh, why, uh, why do we find that uh, some people succeed and others don't? Uh, you know, those kinds of questions, you know, were always of interest to me. Um, and of course, you know, being born in Santo Domingo, I mean, I, I went through a civil war, by the way, in 1965, uh, you know, where the Marines, the U.S. Marines intervened back in 1965, there were 42,000 Marines. So I, I knew firsthand, you know, what, uh, what uh, you know, civil, civil strife could look like. And that's another thing that kind of always crossed my mind, you know, why, why can people somehow manage to, to breach the differences without resorting to violence? You know, those kinds of, those kinds of things. So that's sort of my general background. I mean, uh, whatever they taught you at the Jesuit school, it worked out perfectly. When did you realize that uh, you were a great writer? After how many AMRs, AMJs did you realize that you were really great at this? I had no idea, but I mean, eventually, probably got maybe twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is interesting. Okay. But, you, know, uh, you know. So. Yeah. So. And, you know, frankly, I didn't know how difficult it was. <laughs> you know, now people tell me how difficult it is. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, you know. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Well, I guess one interesting thing is uh, I worked in, the, in a lot of different areas. Uh, you know, my degree was actually more in doctor relations. And uh, so I started doing work in, um, in human resource management and, uh, you know, work on incentive, incentive compensation. And uh, from there, I moved more into strategy area, more general strategy. So, you know, the work on uh, diversification, uh, you know, acquisitions, mergers, uh, executive compensation, those kinds of things. And then I got into the international management area. You know, we got some papers, jeeps. Uh, you know, um, uh, looking at uh, the effect of cultural differences uh, on performance of multinational firms. We had a paper on the maquiladora plants in Mexico, for example, that we published in jeeps. I also actually, I, I had some MBAs, some academic journal papers on uh, how cultural values tend to be a reflection, not only of the culture, but also the professions, people, professions or occupations. So, sir, so if you're an engineer, you tend to have some common values no matter where you are. 
for example. So, so in any case, so I, uh, and then, you know, um, eventually I landed with the family business stuff, which I've been doing the last maybe 15, 20 years. And, you know, some of that, you talk about my childhood. I mean, some of that go back to my childhood because my parents and grandparents had family business. So I had that experience early on. I could see some of the issues and challenges that they face. Uh, so later on, I, I, was, I became interested in kind of applying the academic, you know, right. an academic perspective to family businesses. So uh, that's how I got into that area the last 15, 20 years. When you look back, do you say, uh, I should have done something else? I should have pursued something else? Uh, do you have any regrets in life? Any regrets? God, I couldn't think, you know, maybe it's just me, but I couldn't, you know, no, really. I mean, because when I go back to my corporate life, in retrospect, I thought I had a good deal there. I mean, I, I actually enjoy corporate life and I was making a lot of money. But in retrospect, to me, the best decision I made was to leave corporate life and get into academia. Um, um, so no, I mean, I couldn't think of any regrets that I may have, actually. Okay. okay. Uh, what are you most proud of? Most proud of? Mm -hmm. uh, probably, you know, my probably that I've been able to work in so many different areas. A lot of my colleagues just work in one area. They, they work on a particular topic and they remain kind of very focused or restricted to that. And, you know, I guess I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to work across, you know, a wide span of, okay. you know, management issues, you know, from OB to human resources, to international management, to strategic uh, management, to entrepreneurship. And people sometimes, people have a hard time defining me, actually. <laughs> so I, so I'm not like, you know, I, I guess I'm proud of that. How do you define yourself then? So you're stranded on the side of the road in a small village. People are curious about you. They ask you, uh, so well, what do you do? What do you do for a living? You say, I'm a professor. And people oh. think, okay, he's a teacher. But how do you explain the importance of your research? What do you do? To, you to know, I, don't read, uh, I see what I'm saying. What is the common thread? I think the common thread is the influence of the dominant owners on firm decisions, the interest, the utilities, and drivers of the dominant owners. You know, I guess to me that kind of comes across a lot of what I do. You know, whether it's internationalization, diversification, or whether it's executive compensation or family. And uh, family business, I mean, that's sort of a common thread. Do you work every day? Huh? Do you write every day? Do you work every day? I did, yeah, I do work every day. I do work every day, yes. And What's I work, the process yeah. like? What's the process like for you, uh, for coming up with uh, some interesting idea? What, what is the mind, uh, what does your mind think of in a state of idle curiosity? How do you come up with uh, paper ideas? Oh, you know, I like to daydream. Sometimes I just lay back and say, you know, just kind of like a free flow of ideas. 
and also just talking to people, you know, ideas just flow from talking to people, um, particularly colleagues in different areas. I mean, I work with a lot of different colleagues, hundreds, I mean, I've worked with hundreds of colleagues, just talking to people, you know, see what they do, what they're working on and see how I can connect what they're doing with, um, with what I know, basically, so. But, but just between you and me, uh, is writing 250 plus papers in the top journals is uh, a bit more than luck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a trick. So you, basically everyone is waiting for you to give you uh, give them the trick. What is the trick? What is the I think I think the trick, frankly, first of all, you have to, you know, writing is important, clearly. Uh, I think honestly, part of, I think a big part of the trick is selling. You have to be able to sell whatever you're doing. The most difficult part of writing a paper is to show the reviewer or, or someone else, you know, why is this important? You know, who cares about this? You know, why is this so critical that it should be a paper being written on this? And I think that's the most difficult part, really, of a paper, to come up with a list of things that someone can look at them and say, you know, this is, this is important. And that's part of the marketing, the selling, the crafting, you know, okay. the crafting of the paper. I mean, okay. uh, um, I, you know, that's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge. Um, and I think it's becoming more difficult too, but I have to be honest with you. I think it's becoming much more difficult to publish in those journals. In my opinion, not because the journals are getting any better, but rather because it's a lot more variance in terms of reviewers, associate editors, about things that are neglected uh, in research, contexts, elements, uh, variables that we should have covered more of. Um, what is going to be uh, important um, in the next five to 10 years in the field? What kind of questions, what kind of context is uh, more important for us to pursue? Well, I think, you know, the, uh, you know, the family business stuff is one area that I think it's still going to grow a lot. Just because 90 to 95, 90%, 90% of companies around the world are controlled by, controlled by families. And I think even when that research has grown, there's still quite a bit of, you know, research to be done. There are many questions that are meant to, to be answered in that particular area. Uh, you know, questions like how do families uh, handle conflict, for example. Um, you know, how, um, um, you know, when they internationalize, you know, why do they move into particular areas of the world, you know, family businesses. Um, you know, are family businesses more or less risk-taking? You know, to what extent family businesses are willing to sacrifice performance or financial gains for something else that is not financial. Mm -hmm. You know, that trade-off, that trade-off. <clears throat> you know, a lot of those questions still remain to be explored, you know, and uh, 
You know, another question that also I think remains to, and there are some papers that I've worked on, uh, one we published in Jeeps recently. Uh, another question is, you know, do, do you find that different uh, cultural environments are more supportive for families than others? Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's another interesting question. So your focus uh, for the future, your suggestion for the future is basically family business uh, internationalization processes, yeah. right? Yes. Okay. Uh, about the evolution of the field uh, from where it started from uh, many years ago to where it yeah. is headed to, where it is going to, what are we losing along the way? What are we gaining along the way? What, what, what do you see as the progression? What, what are we... Uh, where are we headed to? Me personally or, or, or the field? You know. the oh, yeah, me, the field. The field. Yeah. I, I like to think that the field is becoming more eclectic, that we consider that we're willing to be cross-disciplinary uh, so that we're willing to blend different uh, theoretical perspectives rather than remain in silos. Which is, by the way, that's the kind of work I like to do. I like to be able to bridge different silos. Uh, and hopefully, you know, there will, be, there will be more of that in the future. Um, in other words, to be able to merge different theoretical paradigms. Uh, uh, you know, for example, the, the distinction to me, I always thought it was not a good distinction, you know, between micro and macro. You know, if you work in organizations like I did, I always felt like, you know, it's not one versus the other. You know, the micro decisions or the strategic decisions, for example, do reflect a lot of micro processes. <clears throat> so that's another thing, you know, right? How do you blend micro, macro uh, processes? Um, I, I like to think that we're going to become more interdisciplinary. I really hope that we can do that. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult because we, as academics, as you know, I mean, we tend to become kind of tribal, like in a, like in a tribe. So we tend to become very narrow. <clears throat> but if we want to make progress, I think that's the way we have to do. We have to somehow we have to be able to cross boundaries. And bring, you know, bring variable from OB to strategy to HR, because that's how the real world functions. I mean, that's how organizations function. Uh, when you meet a PhD student or junior faculty that uh, don't really have a great idea uh, that they are working on, they are asking for your advice on what to work on. Uh, okay, everyone says, you know, you have to work on something that you're passionate about. I, I give you yeah. that part. But what was a great idea for, <clears throat> for them to pursue uh, beyond family business, beyond uh, the interdisciplinary uh, work? Uh, what are the interesting topics that we will be picking up in the next five to 10 years? See, but that, that is the question. The first question, is, will it be interesting? It is interesting. It is important enough mm -hmm. to, to work on. So when a PhD student comes to me, I want to be able to see, you know, part of, part of that is intuition. It is 
question that interesting? Is this question important? Because that's, again, that's what's going to sell the paper. That's what's going to sell your paper. I mean, and I like to tell them, you know, think like a little kid, you know, give me five reasons why this is that important, right? <laughs> really, because that, that is the key question. Um, because in the end, you're going to have to sell it. You're going to have to sell that this is something. Okay. So Luis, uh, uh, who had the most impact uh, on your academic upbringing? Who had the most uh, influence on you? Oh, I would say in academia, uh, you know, my good friend, Henry Tosi, who's now retired. Henry Tosi was the department chair at the University of Florida. And he hired me, my first academic job. <laughs> and, you know, Henry, he's retired now. He's, uh, he clearly pushed me forward, you know, and he's a micro guy. He's, he, he's an interesting guy. He's a mixture of micro, micro guy, you know, or theory type of person. And, uh, and I really liked the way he, you know, I would give him papers, he would look at it and he would say, you know, cut out the first five pages, you know, throw them out, start on page number six. <laughs> he was very good at focusing on things. Um, and you know, he and I work on we work on a bunch of papers. He retired now. We publish a lot of those papers in SMJ, MJ, those kinds of places. Uh, and he also helped me with the with the ownership ownership stuff. Ownership of Domin what? the dominant on the influence of dominant owners. Okay. Organizations. Okay. okay. Uh, so I would say Henry Tosi would be the main person. Um, Manuel Lickett, junior faculty, or even PhD students, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, across uh, young scholars? Yes, I think the most common mistake, and I tell them that, is who they pick to, picking the wrong person to work with. Hmm. I mean, that's not kind of obvious, but it's very much so. I tell them, you know, research work is teamwork. Research work is like a small business. And depending on who you bring into your team, you're going to be successful and you're going to fail. Which means that you really have to pick very carefully who you work with. I mean, that's what I tell them. Uh, because now how do you figure that out? I said, you know, look at people's vita, look what they have done. And then you have to know where your strengths and weaknesses are because you want to pick up, a you, have, you want to pick a team or people that are going to compliment what you're good at or what you're weak at. I, I think that's the key there. Hmm. Yeah, most papers now, I think 95% of papers are co-authored. And the key to success is who you who you bring to your team. And I tell them, you have to be entrepreneurial because no one is going to, at the PC level for the most part, you know, you have to be the one picking your team. You have to be the one choosing who you want to be working with. And to me, that's it. To me, frankly, I think that's the key to success. Hmm. Which skills for you, uh, which skills were uh, most difficult to develop? I believe the writing skills, becoming a good writer, that's the most difficult thing. How does it you do have it? to get practicing and practicing. Okay, that, that's, uh, do you, how many times do you have to edit your work? 
when you write a paper, how many times you edit your uh, paper? Oh, gosh, at least 20 times. Wow. At least 20, yeah. Many, many times. Okay. And sometimes uh, even a few words can make a difference. True, true. And I've been surprised with reviewers. Sometimes reviewers take one word out of context and they kill the paper because of that. Or they misunderstand what you're trying to say. <laughs> true. Because you use a few words that somehow it was misinterpreted, right? Okay. Uh, about advice to not to young uh, people, but right in the middle, uh, the uh, people right after tenure, uh, mid-career uh, faculty. What, what's the advice for mid-career uh, colleagues? I, you know, I would tell them, you know, just to keep motivated on the research because it's easy to get um, sidetracked do other like things. Service? Like, what's the sidetrack? Well, sidetrack could be administrative things or, you know, committee work or okay. editorial work, you know. I mean, it's great to be an associate editor, but, but, but you know, I, I do see associate editors that are barely out of tenure. And, you know, you got four years doing that. I mean, that's going to consume all your time. Sure. And 10 years from now, I don't think people are going to remember that you were an associate editor. You know, people are going to be looking at your papers, hmm. right? So, so my advice is really to be careful not to be sidetracked into other activities that take you away from, you know, from doing your research. I mean, Thank it's you. easy to do, because you're going to get all kinds of, well, you probably, you know, you, you, I get phone calls every day, do this, do that, do that, do the other. Would you like to do this? And then you could be working full time doing other things. I'd <laughs> write <laughs> <laughs> easily. True, true. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, your mind uh, is so crisp uh, on uh, how uh, to start the process, uh, how the paper is written. Okay. Uh, last question for the sake of time. Uh, what's the question I should have asked you, but haven't? About which one? What's a question I should have asked you, but haven't? Oh, um, oh, well, you know, one question is what's happening, a broad question, you know, you know, what's happening to the field, uh, the management field in general, in terms of publications, uh, I am a bit concerned, frankly, that, uh, you know, journals, because of the huge volume of uh, manuscript they get, that journals have become too dispersed, dispersed when it comes to associators. Uh, someone told me something like there are 300 associators that change every three or four years. Hmm. The top journals. That might be an exaggeration. But I mean, if you look at uh, or science, MBA, a lot of those journals, there's a lot of associators and they change you know, every three years. Uh, my, part of my concern is that uh, there's such a diversity of associators and reviewers that there is a lot more, my sense is a lot more randomness in the review process than it used to be. Right. Because before you had like a person like Mike Hitt, who was the editor of uh, the Academy of Journal, he would handle all the papers. 
there were maybe two or three associate editors. Uh, so there was a much better feel for where they were coming from. And I think now there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more dispersion, dispersion. And it had to do with the, the sheer volume of uh, papers, really. But there are so many papers that no single editor can manage them. And that's mm -hmm. what they This is interesting. The luck, you know, if you happen to be lucky and you get the right person, the right reviewer. I mean, you're talking about continuity, right? Continuity and consistency in the uh, review yes, process, yes. in the publication there's process. Consistency. There's a lot, in my opinion, there's far more inconsistency now than it used to be. Is this happening because the field is evolving and maturing, or is this happening because uh, people are saying, you know, uh, the editor should remain, uh, ed editor in chief should remain there for a certain number of years, and then the entire team is replaced? Uh, what is it? Oh, I, I think part of the problem, and this is my other, my other, my other views on this, is that the whole idea of theoretical extension that many journals are pushing for in my view, it's kind of backfiring to some extent because it leads to theoretical fragmentation, not theoretical extension. Hmm. So, well, theoretical fragmentation, uh, which is something that Pfeffer talked about <coughs> 25 years ago. So rather than developing paradigm consensus, we are incentivizing a lot of fragmentation. And that, that, that concerns me. Interesting. Yeah, that concerns me. Is there a solution to this? That's a great question. It's something that I talked to with a number of people, you know, my friend Ansui, I talked to my head, I talked to a number of people about this. No one seemed to have a solution <laughs> <laughs> to the problem. Um, because it has become like a cultural norm that uh, papers have to provide theoretical extension, which is, I mean, that in itself is nothing wrong with that, but the translate, but the problem is the way it has been operationalized, in my opinion, is that it's, sending up, it's ending up in theoretical fragmentation, not extension. You know, when you tweak a variable here, tweak a variable there, you know, you mix variable from two different theories, which are looking at the premises, of both of those theories, and that to me concerns me. So can that be fixed? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know how, you, how, I guess it would take a cultural change. You know, I think for one thing, I think we need to value empirical findings a bit more that, like we used to, you know, but by moving away from the empirical contributions to the so-called theoretical contributions, I do think we have, um, we have an issue with theoretical fragmentation. I mean, that, so basically, you want to see more empirical work in... Um... Or, or valued, consider valued, yeah, to value empirical work and empirical findings as a way to, to provide the basis for additional research, to value okay. that more. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of time, thank you so much, Luis. Uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Uh, thank you for your time. No, thank to you. I appreciate it. And uh, great. Very nice.
Take care.